You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Antonio, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today we're talking about the arrival of the Signet and her crew in the Philippines. As far as pirate stories go, there are a lot of similarities to the stories we know and love. Sandy beaches, crystal clear blue water, and palm trees. The Spanish Empire is all over this story, including their armadas of galleons. The pirate ship is familiar, and the pirates themselves are familiar. I mean, they're some of the same pirates that sailed on the first Pacific adventure, and they were all on the second. They had eye patches and flintlock pistols and cutlasses and rum. Of course, not everything was the same. The rum ran out before they even reached Asia, and after that there was none to be had. There was plenty of wine, though, and it flowed freely. There are a few parrots, but penguins are much more prevalent. There are Indians, but, you know, like actual Indians. Those sandy beaches might have looked similar, but they would have sounded different. The music would have been far different. In the West Indies, they had, you know, proto-blues and rock and roll. They had Spanish guitars and West African drums and rhythm. It had a Caribbean soundtrack, which is great. But over in the East Indies, it was different. They had entirely different musical styles and musical instruments. I think my favorite is the bamboo xylophone. It would have sounded a lot different. And the people were different. Even though this was the Spanish Empire, this was Nuevo España, there weren't that many Spanish people in the East Indies. Largely because the Filipino people that had lived there for centuries were still there. They had the immunities to, you know, not die when the Spanish showed up. And while they did have to live under the encomienda system of the Spanish Empire, they weren't slaves. It wasn't a whole lot better than slavery, if we're being honest, but it wasn't outright chattel slavery, and more to the point, they didn't have to import a large number of West Africans to work their plantations, because the Filipinos were there to do it. And there are the differences between vice in the West and East Indies. The drugs were arguably better in Asia. We'll be talking about that a bit today, but there's also the sex. And you might have noticed that over the past several weeks there have been repeated references to sex and sexuality. 
There have been several descriptions of mostly nude islander women and of their relations with the visitors to their islands. I mean, I've left a lot of stuff out of those discussions, the graphic stuff, and some of it's wild. But all of this isn't by accident. You know, it's not just me relishing the descriptions of those nude islander women. Well, you know, not just that. But it's so prevalent because it's so prevalent in the writings of Antonio P. Giaffetta and William Dampier. And... Well, that's going to get worse before it gets better. This is episode 123, Den of Sin. Are you familiar with the term flesh pots of Asia? It's not a great turn of phrase, it's a little bit racist, and it's inaccurate on a couple of different levels. First of all, there's the word flesh pot. And, you know, I've noticed something about how I do this show. There are a few common touchstones I return to over and over. The Roman Empire is a big one, mythology from around the world, World War II and World War I, classic Golden Age horror movies, oh my god, am I an old man? I just finished setting up my wood shop, oh my god. Alright, I'll, I'll have my existential crisis later. The biggest touchstone that I turn to over and over again seems to be etymology. Word origins and their meanings make sense to me, and it's a tool that I use to understand the world around me. In this case, the word fleshpot. Fleshpot has a distinctly body connotation today. It's typically used to describe houses of salacious behavior. But that's far from the original meaning of the word. Originally, a fleshpot was literally just a pot of meat. It comes from the King James Bible in the book of Exodus, the passage in question reads, quote, And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we ate bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. End quote. And when they say flesh pots there, they mean just jars of cooked meat that they ate with bread to the full. The Israelites were lamenting being brought into the desert, even though they were escaping their captivity. They were reminiscing about the comforts that they enjoyed as slaves in Egypt. On that level, based solely on definition, the image of flesh pots as a den of sin is inaccurate. However, I can accept that words change over time. I will not accept people saying literally when they mean the exact opposite of literally, and that's a hill I'm willing to die on because apparently I am an old man. But the word flesh pots has changed over time. When you Google flesh pots of Egypt, this description by PhD candidate Jamie Wheeler comes up. Quote, the flesh pots of Egypt were so called because of their loose sexuality and equally loose morals. In the Bible, the flesh pots of Egypt are what the Israelites were trying to flee from due to the overt sexuality, greed, and general sin of the Egyptians against the one true God. Egypt was all about excess. End quote. Now that's wrong on many levels, and today many modern translations of the Bible have amended that verse from Exodus to say pots of flesh or even jars of meat. But I didn't share that quote to slam the author, even though I would take exception with a number of things in it. That's just what Google gives us. It's up at the top of the page in big, bold letters. So why did Fleshpot come to mean overt sexuality and sin, 
as opposed to just a jar of meat? How did it become so prevalent in our culture? There's a conversation to be had there regarding race and sexuality that I'm far from prepared to talk about. Honestly, really, that's a question one would need to ask of a philologist, but there are a few things that we could touch on. Remember back when we talked about Barbary and we discussed the image that North Africa had in Europe concerning their sex and morality? You know, Carthage was a hotbed of filthy feminine wiles ruled by an heiress of Jezebel herself. Egypt, in the time of Cleopatra, was ruled by a woman who used feminine wiles to bring down the Republic. Neither of those things are true, and both seem to be carefully constructed to suggest that a woman should never be allowed a position of power, but that stereotype spread. That stereotype of women and sexuality having an undue amount of influence. It spread to the Arabian world and Persia. It moved on to India, eventually to China, and then basically everywhere in the world that wasn't Europe or, you know, parts of the Americas, was a lustful den of sin. And today we're going to look at one possible reason why. Let me read from the first paragraph of chapter 11 of A New Voyage Round the World by William Dampier. Quote, while we lay at Guam, we took up a resolution of going to Mindanao, one of the Philippine islands, being told by the friar, the friar that they had kidnapped, that it was exceedingly well stored with provisions. The natives were Mohammedans, and they had formerly a commerce with the Spaniards, but now they were at war with them. This island was therefore thought to be a convenient place for us to go, for besides that, the westerly monsoon was at hand which would oblige us to shelter somewhere. The inhabitants of Mindanao, being, as we were told, though falsely, at war with the Spaniards, our men, who were squeamish of plundering without license, derived hopes from thence of getting a commission there from the prince of the island to plunder the Spanish ships about Manila, and so to make Mindanao their common rendezvous. And if Captain Swan was minded to go out to an English port, yet his men, who thought he intended to leave them, hoped to get vessels and pilots at Mindanao fit for their turn to cruise on the coast of Manila. As for Captain Swan, he was willing enough to go thither as best suiting his own design, and therefore the voyage was concluded on by general consent. End quote. This paragraph is the thesis statement of the following several chapters of William Dampier's work. I'll be returning to it several times over the coming weeks. There's a lot to unpack in it. But we should move on with William Dampier and Charles Swan and the crew of the Signet. They sailed from Guam and arrived first at what Dampier calls St. John's Island, which was probably Samar. Then they arrived at the northeast tip of Mindanao. Now, Mindanao is the southernmost island of any real consequential size in the Philippines. And I shouldn't minimize that. Mindanao is one of the largest islands in the world. It's about the size of Cuba. It's dwarfed by a number of the surrounding islands like Borneo, Java, and Sumatra. They're real behemoths, but Mindanao is no slouch. And Mindanao is more than just the island. It's the name for the whole southern region of the Philippines. The central region, Visayas, included Cebu and Negros and a number of other islands. 
The northern region, which Dampier calls Luconia, includes the capital Manila on the island of Luzon. The Spanish held both the central Visaya region and the northern Luzon region. Manila was their capital of the Captaincy General of the Philippines. But Mindanao, the entire region, was not occupied by the Spanish. It was ruled instead by a sultan. The one-time Hindu rajas and Chinese Buddhist leaders that had been so prevalent there were gone. At this point, Mindanao was under the Sultanate of Maguindanao and Sultan Barahaman. We'll get to him in a bit, but I don't want you to picture a rigid theocracy here. Linguistically, everyone on the island spoke either Filipino or Malay, but the ruling class and many of the people there also used Arabic. Beyond that, though, many of them spoke Portuguese, Chinese, and Spanish. The capital city of Mindanao had mosques, of course, but it also had Hindu and Buddhist temples and even a Catholic mission. Most people, at least, you know, the better sort of people, practiced Islam, but nearly everyone also still held on to their traditional animism. The markets were filled with goods from Europe and the Mediterranean, from the Middle East and India and China, as well as even the Americas. And the black markets were similarly well-stocked. There was Moroccan hashish to be found, opium from the Golden Triangle, and a number of other intoxicants that we'll get to in a bit. And of course there was the most profitable of all black market products, the spices. It was a multicultural city, which made it perfect for the pirates. I'm sorry, the totally legitimate merchant sailors. And they, you know, they were legitimate. At least they looked honest. They were carrying trade goods that had transaction histories. They had papers, and they had a letter of recommendation from the Spanish governor on Guam. They looked legitimate as long as you chose to ignore that hullabaloo back in Panama and you happened not to notice the mountains of unspent Spanish gold in the crew's possession. And the Spanish might or might not ignore it. If at all possible, even though they had that letter of recommendation, it would be best to avoid the Spanish. And Mindanao offered such a haven. But that does seem a bit odd. I mean, why didn't the Spanish just take the island over? Well, first of all, they didn't really need it. Manila served their purposes just fine as a fortified harbor and government center. Remember, they weren't building expansionistically. They didn't have huge plantations because they were able to use the regional labor already available. But I think even more important than that, we need to realize that there are certain realities of empire which anybody who's ever lived on the fringes of an empire is already aware of. They're less prevalent today, but we still see the vapors of it. The first of these realities is the need for an enemy, and not communists or terrorists or anything that big. No existential threats, no huge imperial boogeymen. We're not talking about the barbarians at the gates here. We're talking about an enemy next door, an adversarial neighbor, maybe a mortal frenemy. You see arrangements like that all over the fringes of empire. You saw them in the West Indies, between the French, Spanish, English, and Dutch. You know, when funds were running low in your colony, especially at peacetime, 
the Captain General at Manila could always write to the Viceroy in Mexico and spin him a tale of pirates and guerrilla attacks from all of those wily Mohammedans down south. At the same time, the Sultan there at Mindanao could hold parades in his honor and the honor of his brave soldiers and spin his own tales about holding the imperial might of Spain at bay. All the while, there was very little actual fighting going on. Hence, why William Dampier would write, quote, Mindanao being, as we were told, though falsely, at war with the Spaniards. There's always a war on, even when there's no war being fought. That's helpful for many reasons, including propaganda, but also trade. It's helpful to have someone next door with whom you can trade clandestinely for any goods that might be hard to come by, or even goods that might be forbidden. We'll dive into the spices next time, but say you needed some of those black market goods and you couldn't find them at home because of your strictly regulated markets. That's what Mindanao was for. Plus, in the case of Mindanao, it created a nice little buffer between the Spanish and the Portuguese. The Portuguese held a ton of territory in Indonesia, to the south and west of the Philippines, including much of the Spice Islands. And it was helpful to have a little buffer state there, so that there would be no territorial disputes between the Spanish and the Portuguese. That means everything stays nice and peaceful. And then, of course, there were the monsoons. Dampier said, quote, The westerly monsoon was at hand, which would oblige us to shelter somewhere. End quote. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The monsoon winds in Southeast Asia were and still are a governing factor for much of the reality of life. The westerly monsoon, which blew east, would blow in around September, and that made traveling west, across the Indian Ocean, say, very difficult. 
travelers were likely to be stranded for several months in that case. So imagine you're the Captain General of the Philippines. You're responsible for the stability of the colony, as well as the upkeep of the Manila-Acapulco fleet, and therefore the maintaining of imperial profit. However, you do operate on a tight budget to ensure that profits stay as high as possible. Would you want to deal with a bunch of stranded foreigners? Say that there's a ship full of Dutch merchants, or say English pirates, that were trapped in the Philippines due to the monsoons for several months. You would have to either house them, and therefore feed them, or imprison them, and therefore feed them, or otherwise kill them and risk an incident. And in the West Indies, that wouldn't be a huge issue. They had the legal and institutional capacity to deal with that sort of thing, as well as the infrastructure. But the East Indies were a lot more bare bones. Remember, the Spanish presence there was almost solely military. They didn't have all of the institutions that existed in Mexico or Cuba, so they had to write to the Viceroy for any of those big decisions, like killing Englishmen. It was a lot easier to keep your frenemy around to the south. They had the food and the houses of worship necessary, as well as the luxuries that one would need to entertain stranded travelers that could come from almost any corner of the globe. So you keep Mindanao around. The benefits far outweigh the detriments of not holding that one single island. The crew arrived at the northeast corner of Mindanao in late June. They made their way south and then west, clockwise, around the island. Now this was a long and leisurely trip. They made several stops to collect water and to hunt the copious game they found on the island. At one point they found a field so filled with deer that they caught 17 or 18 of them in an afternoon and ate venison for weeks after. On their travel they saw several villages and met a number of people. Now they couldn't speak to any of them and some of the people would run away but usually they would smile and point them to the west. Dampier makes note of the site that would go on to become the most populous and prosperous city on Mindanao, Davao City. It already had a village there, but Dampier noted the excellent anchorage. But they continued on, and finally made the west coast of Mindanao. At that point they began seeing fishing proa and coastal settlements almost constantly. It was clear they were closing in on civilization. They arrived at what's called the Moro Gulf. Dampier noted the excellent anchorage here as well, and they saw a series of small islands some twenty leagues off. Much like the site that would go on to become the home of Davao City, this was an excellent place for a large and populous habitation. Little did they know, they had found the capital. It was just hidden. Rather than go ashore, though, Captain Swan ordered Signet to put down anchor and to wait. Now, nobody on board spoke Filipino. They didn't have an interpreter. But Swan still gathered his closest advisors around him. That included William Dampier. It also included the surgeon and the surgeon's mate, Herman Coppinger, and it brought in Mr. Harthop, the factor. John Reed, the pilot of the vessel who we met last time, was probably not present, but three new characters were. There was the captain's mate, Mr. Nelly, an Irishman, 
and Mr. Henry Moore, the quartermaster of Signet. And there was also Mr. Smith, who was a merchant they had captured in Mexico several months before, who spoke fluent Spanish. That evening, two ships sailed out to meet the Signet and her small bark. The first of these ships looked to be a pleasure barge. It was complete with a canopy of leaves and musicians. There was a cadre of women festooned in all sorts of finery, and there were pretty girls to fan the young man that was sitting at the center of all of it. The second ship was much more austere. It was outfitted for war. They had brass guns, a reinforced hull, and men that carried bows and sabers. At their head was an older man who was strong and looked very fierce. The warship put a boat into the water, and the fierce-looking man climbed in. They rowed over to the pleasure barge and picked up the young man there. They rowed over to Signet and hailed her. To everyone's surprise, they did so in Spanish. Mr. Smith was fluent, and he answered them in Spanish, but there were others who spoke the language. Dampier and Swan spoke a bit, as did Henry Moore, but Mr. Smith spoke the best Spanish. The Filipino ambassadors, upon learning that the crew here were Englishmen, were delighted. They knew of the English and understood their relationship with the Spanish. We need to remember that, while the crew of Signet had never met any of these people before, the era of exploration was long past. But these two Filipino men seemed to be expecting Swan and Dampier. They acted as though they were welcoming in old friends. This was confusing. The two men refused to board Signet, however, even though they were invited. Instead, they invited Captain Swan to come ashore that evening and meet the king. At that point, they left. Swan was perplexed by that engagement, but nonetheless he ordered a salute fired and received a return salute. That entire experience was odd. If you were a suspicious person, it might seem like they were going out of their way to make the captain feel welcome and to get him to come ashore. Swan deliberated with his advisors here. Should he go ashore? Everyone eventually agreed that no, Swan should stay with the ship. Instead, they elected to send Henry Moore, the quartermaster. He spoke enough Spanish to make do, and he was trustworthy. More than that, though, if he were horrifically murdered and ritualistically eaten, the ship was free to choose a new quartermaster. And that right there is some top-tier career advice, people. You want to be good enough at what you do that you will be considered for the big, exciting projects, but you don't want to be so indispensable that you won't be considered for another position. Be like Henry Moore. Swan and Mr. Harthop, the merchant factor on board, outfitted a chest and filled it with the gifts that would be suitable for a king. There were lengths of beautiful dyed cloth and a selection of both gold and silver lace. Mr. Moore, alone, took that chest into a boat and rowed ashore. The crew of the Signet watched as he approached the beach. They watched with bated breath as they saw a party of hard-eyed, Scimitar-wielding, torch-carrying men emerge from the tree line. 
They stood like statues as the quartermaster made landfall. As he reached back to collect the chest full of finery, one of the soldiers stopped him. They searched the chest while another searched more himself. Apparently satisfied, these soldiers lifted the chest out of the boat and dragged the boat further ashore. Then they led Henry Moore into the darkness of the tree line. I imagine this was absolutely terrifying for Henry Moore. And you know, I considered telling this bit of the tale entirely from the point of view of the crew that was still on board, but I think it's better to tell what Henry Moore probably experienced. First of all, there was virtually no seaside building on Mindanao. The reason that the city was hidden from view will eventually become clear. Instead, there was an empty beach with a dense, dark tree line. The men who emerged from that tree line and greeted Mr. Moore on that empty beach were small but very well muscled. They had dark eyes and then their mouths. These men all had black teeth, and their mouths were stained red with something. When Moore was led into the trees, he was plunged into a dense jungle. He was surrounded by torchbearers, so he couldn't see that far, but he could hear the sounds of nocturnal life, and occasionally he would see glowing eyes staring back at him. It was a long and winding road on a dark and stormy night. I mean, not really, I don't want to overplay it here, but it did take a while to get to town. When they did finally see civilization approaching, they saw it through the torches that were sticking out of the ground, literally tiki torches. The buildings, when he saw them, were all built on stilts several feet off the ground. There were men outside each of the buildings, and women stared out at him from inside. The houses were impressive, if humble. There were a few larger buildings, marketplaces, and warehouses, but everything was built above the ground. And then Moore saw a huge number of torches and braziers lighting a truly massive structure. It was made all of bamboo and stone mosaic. It was also built on stilts. But these weren't bamboo, they were huge tree trunks as wide as they were tall. There was a stone walkway leading up to a set of double doors guarded by large, scarred, dark-skinned men holding huge halberds. As the party approached, those men opened the doors and Henry Moore went inside, and what he saw there shocked him. He returned to the signet the following morning, a little bit worse for the wear. Dampier and Swan questioned him. You know that feeling when you've been out all night, when you didn't sleep a wink, when you probably imbibed a bit too much and made some questionable decisions? That feeling when you have to take the walk of shame home to your roommates who are busy getting ready for work? I imagine that Henry Moore felt something similar. The previous night he arrived at the central chamber of the palace to see the two men that had approached the signet earlier that day waiting for him. They were sitting on the floor, cross-legged, along with a few other men and many, many women. The women were dancing and laughing and eating from the bowls of rice and fruit and meat, literal flesh pots, that were strategically placed all around the room. The air was heavy with incense and tobacco smoke, as well as the smell of hashish. 
Bamboo hookahs were available for anyone in the room to use, even the women. Now, there was no alcohol, but there was tea and fruit juice, and everyone was chewing on... something. Maybe nuts, it looked like. There were huge piles of green nuts on platters all around. At the center of all of this was a slight, smiling elderly man. This was the Sultan's household. And everyone from the sultan down to the servants had those same black teeth and red mouths. Moore could see it clearly here as everyone was smiling and laughing and singing. But when he arrived, everyone turned to watch the newcomer. The women were especially watchful. You have to imagine that Henry Moore tried very hard not to watch back. The quartermaster was presented to the sultan, who didn't speak any Spanish, but he was flanked by those two men from earlier. The young man from the pleasure barge turned out to be the sultan's eldest son. The older man, the hard-eyed soldier, was the sultan's younger brother. And his name was Raja Laut. And you need to remember Raja Laut. He's going to become very important to our story as it unfolds. At this point, though, all the eyes were turned toward the sultan. For our purposes, we'll call him what he is best known to history as Sultan Barahaman. Although, to be fair, we're not going to be seeing him that much. His brother, Raja Laut, is a much bigger player in our story. We'll look at all that next time. For now, though, let's focus on Henry Moore. He presented the gifts to Sultan Barahaman, who was greatly pleased. Henry Moore thought on his feet a little bit here. That's why you want to trust someone like Henry Moore when he realized that one of the men who had come to visit was the general and brother of the sultan, he split up the gifts and gave him some of those as well. The sultan, pleased, instructed Moore to invite Captain Swan and his top fellows to come visit him the following morning, and then he retired. A number of the women in the room retired as well, probably his wives and concubines, but the festivities continued. And once the sultan left, they became a little less formal. Moore was offered food and tea, which he eagerly accepted, he went on to smoke with Raja Laut and the prince. And the women, they kept their distance, but they watched more. And they danced. But before the dancing, before we get to that, the men, the Raja and the Sultan's son, showed Henry Moore how to enjoy their most favorite pastime. That paste that they were all chewing did come from those nuts. And it turns out that these were the nut of the betel plant. The nut of the betel plant tastes awful. Oftentimes people will mix them with mustard seed to cover the flavor. And in fact, all of the men here had little pouches on their belts that they used to carry their favorite flavor additive to aid in the consumption of the betel nut. It's funny to me that alcohol is so prevalent in the history of all world civilization. Every culture has its own alcohol. The people of Mindanao had their own brew. But it wasn't at the sultan's house, because in the Muslim world, alcohol is forbidden. And yet, probably as a consequence of that, most of the best drugs in the world, in some form or fashion, come from the Muslim world. I mean, I guess you have to improvise when God tells you not to drink. Muslims developed many of these, but in many cases it was the pirates who spread them. You know, the Barbary pirates who encountered hashish in Morocco loved it. 
the Caribbean pirates who were introduced to the coca leaf couldn't get enough, and I know that wasn't Islamic, but just roll with me here, and the modern Somali pirates chew chat all day long. And right here, in this din of pious, godly drug use, there's no sin occurring, Henry Moore was introduced to the betel nut, which was called Bwai. Bwai is, even today, big business in Southeast Asia. We're talking about millions of dollars and tens of thousands of jobs. Bwai gets you high. It's been described as a dizzy, sweaty, energetic euphoria. Henry Moore loved it. It's highly addictive, and it kept him up all night. The unmarried women who were there chewed the stuff as well, and then they began to dance. They weren't wearing very much, and their dances turned out to be about as intoxicating as the boy. At some point, the sultan's son retired as well, so Moore was left sitting with Raja Laut to watch the dancers. And Raja Laut's wives came over and doted on Mr. Moore. They lit the hookah for him. They brought him tea, and they asked him questions that the Raja, smiling, translated. The questions were frank and a little bit daring. Henry Moore was probably nervous about answering them to the face of the husband of the women asking them. And, you know, I'm brushing past the whole polygamy thing. We'll talk about that later. But as the night wore on, inhibitions began to lessen. Moore enjoyed himself that evening. However, reportedly, it was relatively innocent. You know, as innocent as taking drugs all night on the other side of the world can be. But William Dampier writes, quote, The women are very desirous of the company of strangers, especially white men, and doubtless would be very familiar if the custom of the country did not debar them from that freedom which seems coveted by them. End quote. Dampier is suggesting that the women were not familiar due to the customs of Mindanao, and that probably was true occasionally, but, as we all know, bad behavior is defined by breaking the rules. I suspect that Henry Moore enjoyed himself far more than the text suggests to us. See, the general of Mindanao, Raja Laut, was overjoyed at the English presence, and he wanted something from the crew of Signet. And when you are after something and you go through the trouble of throwing a large and lavish party for your new guest, you do everything in your power to ensure that they are happy. What the Rajah wanted, and exactly how he planned to go about getting it, well, that's a topic for next week. But that was the concern of Charles Swan and William Dampier, of Mr. Harthop. Mr. Moore, on the other hand, well, he was the quartermaster. He would have told the captain all about these large concerns, but his job was overseeing the crew, and he told the crew all about his experiences in the home of the sultan, about the boy, about the food, and about the women. Even if Mr. Moore's night was mostly innocent, I'm certain that he told the men on board that it was anything but. That dichotomy, that... Difference in priorities here, it's going to become a major element in the story moving forward. Next time, our characters go to town in Mindanao. 
They meet the Sultan and the Rajah, and they learn all about the situation. The situation in Mindanao, the situation in the Philippines, and the larger situation in Southeast Asia. And they have to make some big decisions about how they are going to fit into that world. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us a rating or a review, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't gone to check them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at Pirate History Podcast, or you can get in touch on Twitter, Reddit, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight